It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello to everyone listening. I'm your host, Joe Mott. I pray you're all well. I thought I might generate some conversation with the program's audience and myself with this device. I read this argument in a book written by a skeptic. Yes, I do read books written by skeptics of Christianity. But this one was so bad I quit after a few pages. I definitely would not recommend it. Here is his argument. Premise number one, God created everything. Premise two, evil is a subset of everything. The conclusion, three, therefore, God created evil. Do you see anything wrong with this argument? If you think you know, contact the station and they will inform me. In the last episode, I discussed the relationship between faith and reason. I expressed there were drawbacks to the two options of reason alone and faith alone. So the only remaining option was the combination of faith and reason. We concluded that reason supported faith rather than the opposite possibility. Now today, I want to discuss objections to the practice of apologetics. Despite all the examples of apologetic reasoning in the Bible, some well-meaning Christians today still raise objections to apologetic reasoning because they think they have either biblical or theological reasons to forbid apologetics. They marshal a variety of scriptural passages that supposedly demonstrate the invalidity of the practice of apologetics. To answer these objections, I could simply appeal to my list of eight reasons why Christians should be involved in apologetics as sufficient grounds to refute any biblical and theological objection and go on with my other business. Any reasons for apologetics is a blanket refutation against objections to doing apologetics. But reasons for are not absolutely certain. So it's possible that will not be convincing to everyone. So I will listen to the objections and refute them individually. I discovered some of these objections from two publications by Norman Geisler. First, when skeptics ask by Geisler and Ronald Brooks, and second, 
12 points that show Christianity is true by Geisler and Doug Potter. Additional objections can be found in the book Thinking About Christian Apologetics by James K. Bealdby. Objection number one. Paul tried to use apologetic reasoning in Acts 17 in Athens, but failed and never attempted to use that practice again. My answer is, I seem to recall this objection voiced from the pulpit at my own church. Some people, including the great archaeologist Sir William Ramsey, consider Paul's defense of Christianity before the Areopagus, the high court in Athens, to be a tragic mistake. But I believe this objection is fallacious. Let us see Ramsey's five reasons for his opinion. He writes, number one, there were only negligible results in Athens. Number two, Paul had a hasty departure from Athens. Number three, there is a contradiction between his practice in Athens and that of his practice in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1 and 2, and Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Number four, Paul later placed emphasis on the Word of God. And number five, his refusal to ever speak again in philosophical style. Down through the years, other people have merely parroted Ramsey's statements as objections against the practice of apologetics. But contrary to Ramsey's first objection, the experience at the Areopagus cannot reasonably be called, be judged as a failure. The results are not negligible, as Ramsey claimed. Acts 17, verse 34, gives the result, and several people believed, including two people, Dionysius and Damaris, known widely enough to be named. The apologetic approach is a function of the context. In this case, before the premier university center of the ancient world, before ridiculing audience of skeptical philosophers and lawyers, in my opinion, this was a remarkable success. Neither is it clear that Paul left Athens in haste. Haste is not a necessary conclusion from the connotation of the word depart used in Acts 18, verse 1. Even if it were, that would not necessarily demonstrate dissatisfaction with his address. So Ramsey's second objection is in doubt. Let me respond to Ramsey's fifth objection. I claim that Paul never abandoned philosophical reasoning. That hypothesis simply ignores extensive data to the contrary. In Acts 18.4, we read that Paul reasoned in the synagogue at Corinth every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. 
The Greek word for reason is dialegomai, from which we derive the English word dialogue. In Ephesus, he reasoned with the Jews for three months. When opposition arose, he still did not abandon his approach. Rather, he moved the disciples from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannus, reasoning daily for two more years, where all who dwelt in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That can be found in Acts 19, verses 9 through 10. At Troas, Paul reasoned with them until midnight and beyond, Acts 20, verses 7 through 12. This all happened after his experience in Athens. So the case against following Paul's example at Athens, as reported in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, collapses before the evidence of biblical data. Upon examination of Ramsey's two other objections, we discover they do not hold water either. See Testing Christianity's Truth Claims by Gordon R. Lewis, pages 31 through 32. It seems to me that this is a classic example of how two different people can use identically the same data and still come to completely different conclusions. I think this happens largely because of their presuppositions that they had before considering the data. Objection number two. No one is saved by apologetics, but by preaching Christ, as in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. My answer is, Apologetics is one way to remove barriers to faith. I repeat, the God of reason who created people with the capacity of reason would not bypass reason on the way to the heart. Objection three. Isn't faith enough for salvation? We are saved by faith alone, as in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 not by faith plus reason. Why do we need reason? My answer, yes, we are saved by faith alone. But are you saying that faith and reason are incompatible? In the last episode, I showed that faith alone had its drawbacks. So consult the last episode. Nevertheless, let me add this. Faith is not unreasonable. And a rational person needs evidence that God exists before placing his trust in God. We are exhorted not to be, quotes, like unreasoning animals, end quotes. That's found in Jude 4 and verse 10. And to examine everything carefully, found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 21. Quite often, when two different factions of Christianity differ markedly over the proper interpretation of certain biblical passages, the root of the difficulty lies in the failure to note appropriate distinctions. Each 
individual believer in Christ must deal in two dimensions of belief. Belief that and belief in. Understanding the relationship between them is key to discerning the relationship between faith and reason. Here are some scriptural references to belief that. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's found in John 6, verse 69. Another passage is, Believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. That's in John 10, verse 38. Martha said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. John 11, verse 27. Jesus said, Now I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. That's found in John 13, verse 19. Some references to believe in include 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, which says, For Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In the Gospel of John, the word in is, is the translation of the Greek word ice, which literally means into. John six twenty one says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Also in John 7, verse 5, For even his brothers did not believe in him. In the council, someone said, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. That's found in John 11, verse 48. So you could say that believe into Christ is a strengthened form of relationship with Christ, perhaps implying an identification with him, and a union with him. In the Gospel of John, there are 100 references to the word believe, and I've only referred to seven. I suggest you research the other 93 references to believe in the, in the book of the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.